Okay. Um, so uh, that was a very uh, rich talk with a lot of clinical pearls in it. Um, and so today, right now, we're going to switch to a different kind of subject. Um, and I want to welcome Dr. Robert Fullalove. Uh, he's going to talk with us today about stigma, which is one of our most entrenched and really life-threatening issues. Uh, he's also going to speak with us about issues involving populations that have been historically underserved. Dr. Fullalove is an associate dean for community and minority affairs and professor of clinical sociomedical sciences and the co-director of the city's research group. And in addition to teaching public health courses in six New York state prisons that are part of the Bard College Prison Initiative, he has been awarded the Distinguished Teaching Award at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health three times. So uh, let's go ahead. Thank you very much. So I think it becomes evident because my degree is posted along my name. I'm not likely to give a presentation that's going to focus a great deal on many of the issues with medicine and with treating HIV that I know have been a central part of the conversations you have been having in this conference. I'm someone who is very well aware of medical culture. My father, my grandfather, and my ex-wife are all physicians. I want to believe that uh, one of the things that ties me to this presentation is the fact that my grandfather graduated from medical school in 1907, treated Spanish flu in the Delta of Mississippi in 1917, 1918, excuse me. It killed my grandmother, and it had a great deal to do with the fact that my dad became a physician himself a urologist specializing in sexually transmitted diseases, so that when in 1986 with Mindy Thompson Fullalove, my then wife, I became part of the Center for AIDS Prevention Studies, I brought with me to the work that we had been doing for the last 35 years, a real understanding of both what I would describe as the medical side of what we're looking at with a pandemic like COVID-19 or HIV, and much of what it takes to really understand working in communities. I've been teaching courses in public health in six New York state prisons. And as a consequence, I have a lot of conversations about many of the issues that you all are confronting. Those of you who are from New York state might be aware of the fact that there is a program that has been funded for a number of years by the New York State Department of Health called PACE, Prisoners Concerned About AIDS Counseling and Education. And it's one of the ways in which I like to think about what it is we're doing as we start to think about two things, HIV AIDS and the COVID-19 pandemic that we are dealing with. In the learning objectives, I've tried to make it clear that this is a talk that will try to link where we are right now with that pandemic with much of what I think has been learned from studying the HIV pandemic, which in many respects, for those of you who do health disparities research, has some rather striking, striking and sometimes problematic similarities. I think it's clear that uh, if you know the epi of HIV, prisons continue to be, as they have been almost from the origin of our understanding of this pandemic, major sources of infection for HIV. Rates of infection are five, uh, three times, excuse me, what they are in the general population. 
And it's been very clear that what we're seeing with COVID-19 is something that we could have anticipated simply by looking at the relationship between HIV AIDS and mass incarceration. Some of you may be aware of this. Forgive me if I repeat a statistic that you've heard too often. The United States has roughly 4.8% of the world's population, but as a nation, it incarcerates 25% of the people doing time behind bars. Say that again. 25% of the world's prisoners are doing time in prisons here in the United States. And kind of as a way of understanding why COVID-19 is now more densely concentrated in these settings than just about any other congregate setting in the United States, you have but to look at this. If you don't work in a prison, you might have gotten the notion that anybody who was locked up in the United States is doing time in a cell where social distancing is going to be relatively easy. No, nothing could be further from the truth. The facilities I work in in New York State look very much like this. This image could have been taken in a dormitory in just about any state prison in the United States. And I think that in understanding the relationship between what I think has really impacted HIV, AIDS in Black and Latino communities and what we're dealing with in terms of COVID-19 now is neatly summarized in this statistic. It is a source of many of the health disparities that are driving the health of the U.S. population. Black men in the United States have a one in three chance that they were born after 2001 of doing time in a prison. Those of you who are following the news are well aware of the fact that the criminal justice system is now under severe question because of the murder of uh, uh, an individual in Minneapolis. You begin to see that, as is pointed out in this slide, mass incarceration and race and disease have to be understood as intimately linked. People of color are 37% of the U.S. population, but 67% of the prison population. The fact that you have folks cycling in and out of prison, I'm going to argue, has a great deal to do with many of the issues that we're confronting as we try to understand HIV in poor communities of color. I'm an old guy. I've been around for a while. I know I don't look it, but I was born in 1944, so I have understood from a very visceral standpoint what it's like to see this nation transformed as all of a sudden we have become what is called a carceral society. We are now a nation that not only locks up a lot of people, many of the issues that are driving the health of the communities where COVID-19 is raging began with, as I'm suggesting here, our sudden fascination with the notion that you could control substance use disorders. You could, you could do something to control our struggles with addictive disorders by locking people up. Although we routinely cite the beginning of HIV as 1981, isn't it clear that as soon as the nation declared war on drugs in 1970, and as soon as we began to see that locking people up was somehow going to help us deal with our drug abuse epidemics, what we did, as the slide suggests, is lock up the group that was most likely to have been exposed to HIV in the years before we even knew that HIV was present in our population. Folk who were using drugs intravenously were cracked down upon in a city like New York. And it's not at all surprising to sort of understand that that crackdown was one of the reasons why that group, folk who were using intravenous drugs and sharing equipment, had a great deal to do with the sudden rise of HIV in incarcerated populations. 
I started doing this work in New York City in 1990. I had a number of conversations with folk who were home from prison, who were struggling with an HIV infection, and who pointed out a body of research that had been done in Green Haven State Correctional Facility in New York, conducted by the late Eddie Ellis, where a careful survey of the zip codes of all the folk who were locked up in the New York State prison system proved more than anything else, that in the moment when HIV was rapidly growing in the city of New York, seven neighborhoods in New York City were home to 74% of the prison population, and the neighborhoods from which they originated happened to be the ones that had the highest HIV seroprevalence rates, in some instances, in the United States. Once again, the cycling, the circulation between communities on the one hand and prison facilities on the other, has a great deal to do with why for many, many years, HIV was a real problem. And New York City turned out to be an epicenter of the epidemic that we were dealing with here in the United States. It's important to understand that we're not just talking about something that impacts individuals, we're talking about communities as well. Since we have begun this war on drugs, since its problems are still with us to this day, it's important to understand that it has an impact on the community as well. As the slide suggests, one of the things you want to deal with most, one of the things you want to understand about this circulation and its impact on the communities to which people return, folks who leave prison don't go to rich, well-off neighborhoods. They typically go back to the places where they originate. And in many, many communities here in the city of New York and throughout urban areas throughout the United States, Almost all the folk who are on probation, on parole, or who are simply home are basically doing time in neighborhoods that are already struggling with substantial health disparities. This is a way of sort of talking about how much HIV isn't just a problem of individuals from a public health standpoint. We're really looking at a neighborhood phenomenon. And the idea that you can measure this, you can quantify this by thinking about issues of uh, the multiple losses that have been suffered in communities, perhaps as a result of mass incarceration, neatly points out why the loss of so many adults to the community was a major factor in those communities' struggles in the 80s and 90s to deal effectively with HIV. It's a struggle that is ongoing, as many of you know. Here's a way of understanding that, once again, from the city of New York. This is from the Million Dollar Project here at Columbia University. So what is it that you're looking at? Well, quite simply, if you were to take the neighborhood that uh, is right next door to mine across the street, and if you were to walk around and check each building in that block that uh, is in uh, one of these interesting parts of town, and if you were to count all the people who are in that area, who you listed as an address, but who are now doing time in a prison in upstate New York, and then if you counted the number of folks on the block, who were in that kind of situation, and then multiplied it times $62,000, the amount of money that one spends to keep someone incarcerated per year here in the state of New York, this is the map that you'd produce. A map where you're seeing a whole host of blocks where we're spending a million dollars, not on healthcare, not on housing, not on education, but to keep people behind bars. Here's a small print in the slide. These districts, the ones that are circled, are home to 17% of the city's adult male residents. 
but they account for 50% of the men sent to prison from the city of New York. It's really important to see how those maps map on to a map of health disparities in the city of New York. This is a map that was taken and done in 2004, before gentrification became an issue in New York and New York City. And part of what you're looking at is the similarity between the neighborhoods that have high rates of poverty, high rates of diabetes, high rates of HIV AIDS. The notion that these are the same neighborhoods is one of the ways of understanding how what we are looking at is a level of intersectionality between race, neighborhood, drug use, and disease that I believe is a problem that we're seeing today with the COVID-19 pandemic. In 1997, according to Hammett and Collins, an article published in the American Journal of Public Health, at the height of the HIV pandemic in the 1990s, fully 20% of all Americans living with HIV cycled in and out of prison. Those of you who are in the U.S. and who are dealing with a population in the city that is struggling with HIV, I'm betting that you too understand how much time in prison, time behind bars, has a great deal to do with the presenting characteristics of your patients. It's one of the ways of pointing out that something that was concentrated in prison is now in many respects, contributing to a variety of problems that have spilled over into the communities from which people originated and to which they return when they are released. Understand that there are 2.2 million people who are incarcerated in the United States today. They're often in conditions that anticipate many of the issues that we could have understood about COVID-19 if we'd simply been paying attention. We know that these are folks who are in crowded conditions despite the fact that they have a constitutionally guaranteed right to health care. In many instances, they do not get it. The idea that uh, in too many instances, mass incarceration impacts a population that is really no threat to the health or the safety of the general public is something that we are really beginning to understand now because of COVID-19. The degree to which the virus is now impacting communities all over the United States. The fact that so many of these infections may have originated in a jail or a prison has now got folks understanding how much and to what degree mass incarceration doesn't just affect communities of color. It could be impacting all of us. If a source of infection comes about as a result of someone who was locked up, who's now suddenly back home and then likely to go back into prison again, is it not the case that if we're going to deal with COVID-19, in ways that are going to be superior to the ways we dealt with HIV, we'll have to start thinking about what do we do with the problems of mass incarceration. As the slide points out, in way too many instances, if you were to look at the jail population of a city like Chicago, you'd discover that in Cook County, the folk who are doing time in the Cook County jail, 94% of them are there for reasons that have very little to do with the threat to public safety, and everything having to do with their poverty, their homelessness, and especially their struggles with a variety of different mental health disorders. Please understand that we're seeing more and more evidence that this is an issue. Those of you who follow the New England Journal of Medicine might have recalled on March 3rd, a very poignant editorial, a perspective piece that basically said, we need to start thinking about decarceration as a way of dealing with the threat to the health of the public 
that is represented by locking up so many folks struggling with infectious diseases in prison facilities. I want to suggest that, especially with data such as this, the idea that uh, the community jail cycling accounted for a substantial portion of the infection with COVID-19 in the city of Chicago and in the state of Illinois. It's a way of sort of understanding that now, more than at any other time in our past, certainly now more than at any other time that I have been dealing with trying to communicate the problems that are associated with mass incarceration on the one hand and infectious diseases on the other, we now have people who are suddenly paying attention. What we couldn't do with HIV and pointing out how much that might have an impact on community health, I now think is going to be possible based on what's going on with COVID-19. So isn't it fair to say that what we're looking at now is a way in which those of us who are concerned about the epidemiology of infectious diseases, not just HIV, but a whole host of things that are probably very, very much a part of what we see in many carceral facilities in the United States, is this not a moment when we start to think about what can we do to make things better? I want to suggest that for those of you who do work that impacts policy, this is the moment where for everyone who is concerned about the degree to which HIV in prison complicates the task of managing a patient who is home from prison, maybe this is the moment when public health realities will start to impact the way in which we make public policy. If we're going to be changing much of the world as a function of what's happened with COVID-19, this is the moment when many of you who've been working in the HIV arena for many years, as have I, can basically climb on board and say, listen, this problem has been with us since the 1970s. It is a problem that will not go away. If we're going to make inroad, inroads with any of the infectious diseases that impact marginalized populations, shouldn't we be rethinking the wisdom of locking so many people up behind bars? Again, um, my work with the PACE program in three prisons in upstate New York has really inspired me in a variety of different ways. These are men. I haven't looked at this in the women's prisons where I work, but these are men who are largely involved with running peer programs that do a magnificent job of educating people about the risks of HIV in, in, in infection in prison. A lot of risks still exist there with drug use, consensual and non-consensual sex. But they're also dealing with the issue of stigma. It has been amazing to be present inside a prison on World AIDS Day when you're going to see between 150 and 200 incarcerated persons spending the day talking about HIV AIDS, its impact on them, their personal lives, their impact on life in the prison, and its impact at the moment that they decide it's time to go home. It's one of those, I think, really important understanding of how much if we are going to get on top of this and other pandemics, part of what we have to do is find the way to connect the general public to our struggles. Everything about our failure to get the general public to be absolutely adherent to all of our advice about how to be free of infection with COVID-19 certainly applies at a moment when, as we're trying to change public thinking about all the issues that are raised by health disparities in communities of color, where it becomes very clear that if we did a better job of controlling diabetes, 
heart disease, heart disease, obesity, and a variety of other factors, we would not be struggling with the rates of COVID-19 fatalities that we have been dealing with over the course of the last year and a half. I believe that it is that conversation. I believe that it is that discourse in medicine and public health that has an opportunity to make a real difference. I'm 77 years old. I was born at a time when segregation ruled everything about my life. I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and as a young man, I had to figure out how to navigate the spaces and places in my life by looking at signs that said colored or white. Now that I've reached this age and am neatly situated in an Ivy League school of medicine and public health, I really get to understand the power that medicine has to sway public opinion. As a nation, we'll be struggling with the aftermath of COVID-19, even if it's an, an endemic condition that we'll be continuing to struggle with. Our ability to link what's happening with this pandemic and link it to all the other issues, but especially HIV AIDS that are so much a part of the struggle to promote public health programs in poor communities of color means that whatever else may be true about how we deal with these problems medically, socially, politically, we have an opportunity to have a voice that is uniquely capable of being understood at a time when we're struggling to think about policies that will improve the health of Americans and do the job necessary to make sure that threats that are so avoidable, threats that are so preventable, like an HIV infection, now become once again part of the nation's number one public health agenda. Uh, it is an idea I want to suggest whose time has come. A non-traditional presentation, I think, in a conference like this. I think this is the moment when I was asked to sort of stop and uh, ask for questions. Ladies and gentlemen, I was trained in the ministry. Ministers do not stop to ask for, <laughs> ask for questions. If this sounded more like a sermon than a lecture, je vous en prie. It is true. But I'm interested to see whether or not I have raised a set of issues that you would be interested in discussing. discussing. And since you can't always see what's in the chatter and the questions when you're making a full screen presentation on PowerPoint, maybe now is the time if there are questions, I can provide something that looks like answers. Yes, we do have a few questions. And I just want to say if that was a sermon, it was a sermon we needed to hear. So thank you so much for that. Um, so we have a question about your perceptions about HIV stigma uh, for immigrant populations. Are, are you seeing differences in the way HIV stigma is perceived among immigrants? I am speaking to you from Washington Heights, New York, in Manhattan. This is a neighborhood that is 70% Dominican. The Dominican influence in Washington Heights, for those of you who might have done your medical training here at Columbia, is a relatively recent phenomenon. And I think it's important to point out that in the old days, the neighborhood that I'm in now, Washington Heights, used to be called Upper Harlem. This is a place that did have, for example, Latinx populations, but they were largely Puerto Rican. They were largely Cuban. And in many instances, they were from a variety of parts of the Caribbean that we hardly ever speak about, but which are Spanish speaking. Then it became clear that with the introduction of a population that contained a large number of folk who are here in a clandestine fashion, meaning that they don't have uh, the papers that will allow them to stay here, 
there have been many discussions about what you can and can't do in order to access the kinds of services that will allow you to survive in a city like New York. What you will see in that conversation are a variety of issues related to what does it mean to be a member of a stigmatized population? I think our previous administration in Washington did a terrible job, or depending on how you look at it, a magnificent job of stigmatizing immigration just in general. So that in this community, HIV joins a long list of issues and problems that are associated with being here in this country without appropriate papers. So if it's not HIV, it could be any one of a dozen different things. And as a consequence, you will hear folk who are in the immigrant community talk about what happens to them because of their social and citizenship status and not necessarily their status as a population that could be suffering from a variety of diseases. In New York City right now, if you need to get a COVID-19 vaccine, your immigration status does not matter. They don't ask that kind of question. And there is a hope that the stigma that's associated with immigration and the way in which in this current public health crisis we've had to confront it is a way in which many people who do immigrant rights and health in this city are really hoping that we can change the conversation about immigrant stigma. We can include all the issues that are troubling the health of so many of the people who are here in this neighborhood. And as a consequence, start to make some real progress towards eliminating the health disparities that are so much a part of that population. Again, HIV is just one of a host of, of distressing conditions that people struggle with. And the issue that they deal with isn't the stigma related to their disease. It's just being here as an unwelcome member of the American slash U.S. community. Absolutely. And uh, we, we hope to put some of those bad days behind us. Uh, and hope that hopefully we will have more enlightened policies uh, as we go forward. But really, we have so much to advocate for in that regard to make it happen. Um, so we have another question about your perception of the kind of important features uh, of decarceration programs that would be successful related to drug addiction. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, perhaps you saw the December 2020 report that the CDC issued, 81,000 overdose deaths in the United States. I think that part of what we're seeing and that we aren't speaking about appropriately are all of the mental health challenges that are facing the American public with large numbers of folk medicating their problems with depression, trauma, and what have you by taking all sorts of uh, illicit medications. I, I do believe that uh, part of what we're starting to see is a rethinking of a variety of issues about the health of the general public where if we're able to include what happens with addictive substances, if we're able to understand how much many, many people over the last year have increased their alcohol consumption and have increased their consumption of a variety of things designed to help them feel good, up to and including cigarettes, by the way. I don't know whether you all are around folk who suddenly started smoking again because it calms me in the midst of all the Zoom meetings I have to make. You begin to understand that once again, I think we're at a position to have a a, a relatively new and unique conversation about what we do about substances. Add to that the fact that a lot of folk in the harm reduction community are pleased with the notion that in many, many states like New York, we're decriminalizing uh, marijuana. 
again, leading to the notion that maybe we are able to have a completely different discussion about substance use disorders that we haven't, able, haven't been able to have before. Think about the state of California, which has had to basically release from prison large numbers of folk who were arrested for marijuana-related crimes. And now that it is no longer a criminal issue in that state, they've had to be let go. I, I want to suggest that we're at that unbelievable, pivotal, watershed moment in American history where a lot of things that are part of our, our past are now on the table to be discussed. And those of us who are really concerned about the manner in which we manage those who are struggling with addictive disorders, we're going to be, I think, at the top of the line. Think of all the folk in a city like this who couldn't show up at a methadone clinic in order to get their daily dose. Think of what happens when in a city like this, all of a sudden it becomes okay to give somebody a week or two weeks worth of methadone so that they can continue. Decarceration is one of the ways in which we really sort of understood that much of what we do to lock people up kind of isn't necessary. Police in New York City were told, do you really have to put this person in jail? Prosecutors had to ask the question, is it really important that I hold this person in the local jail so that he, she, or they can be bound over for trial? Judges have had to ask the question, is the good of the public really served by my sentencing this person to something that looks like time in jail or time in prison? And I want to suggest that everything about the steps that we take that lead to someone ultimately winding up in a jail or a prison are the kinds of steps that decarceration is asking us to reconsider. I'm taking it a step back to look also, at, well, what are the ways in which we're dealing with the mental health issues that so many people are struggling with that put them in positions where they'll, they'll abuse substances and ultimately wind up in a jail and ultimately in prison. If we see that as part of one big, nasty, ugly system, and are aware of the fact that decarceration is one of the ways in which we can begin to ask, is this really necessary? Is this the best way to uh, serve the needs and the health of the general public? If those of us who are dealing with this in this conference are part of those conversations, if we're in a position to say something, I think our vast experience trying to deal with all the problems that link drug use to HIV to care in very odd and sometimes challenging settings will mean, in many respects, that we have a voice that deserves to be heard. And I'm hoping that when the time comes to speak, we will. I hope so, too. I, I think sometimes as uh, HIV providers and clinicians, um, we, we forget that our job doesn't end when we leave the exam room and that maybe it starts when we leave the exam room. We really have a very important voice uh, to use for advocacy. So that's, that's something that I, I think you're brilliantly about and, and something that I hope we will all uh, take to heart as we leave this meeting today. Um, we have a couple more questions in the Q&A, but I do want to say that about half of the Q&A are comments like, uh, thank you for this incredibly important presentation. Thank you for giving a voice to the disenfranchised and forgotten populations. Um, and thank you for the inspiration. So I, I just, I know you're not looking at the Q&A, but I want you to hear those messages from, from the audience. Um, and, and so the, the question that, um, I think it's interesting from a treatment point of view, and I know that's not your bent, but we have now the opportunity to treat people with HIV drugs that are given 
once a month, maybe once every two months by injection. Um, and do you have any thoughts about the role that these kinds of drugs might play in, uh, in incarcerated populations, perhaps planning for release? Uh, can they decrease stigma having to do with HIV and service delivery and pills every day? Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. And that is a really excellent question. If you look at the 50 states of the United States, one of the things you're going to see is that departments of corrections do not follow the same theme when people are released. If you are somebody who was treated for HIV in prison, you may or may not be connected almost immediately to a provider and to someone who is going to be in a position to provide you with medications. Some of you may recall that maybe 20 years ago, we were really worrying about variants to HIV that would result when people who were treated in prison, who got the meds, would come home and then would be like 60 days before they'd pick up the prescriptions. And by that time, a variant that we can't treat had been developed. Well, if it is the case that it is often a very difficult task to be connected to care and to be connected to your pharmaceuticals at the moment you're released, especially if you have to go through parole, some states are really quite ugly about that, then the idea that you can have a dose that does not require that every day you make sure that you take in your meds I think will lessen the likelihood that we'll see variants of HIV as a result of what happens when people are unable to access care the moment they get home. I would see that at least for that population, it would be really, really huge. The other thing that I think is pointed to in the question, I'm betting the person who asked it is very well aware of the fact that when people go to a clinical setting and have to tell somebody, not their physician, I just got out of jail. If you want my records, you'll have to get them from the Department of Corrections. And then all of a sudden, the light behind the eyes of the reception, it goes out. Oh, you're one of them. Anything that makes it possible for folk who stay away from healthcare settings and the treatment of HIV because they don't like how they're treated in a clinical facility may discover that if the number of visits they have to make has gone down dramatically. They don't have to constantly sort of check in. Our ability to retain them in treatment might go up substantially. I know that uh, everything about what we have been concerned about, from knowing that you're infected to getting into care, staying into care, and then ultimately being essentially at a point where you're undetectable, that there are a lot of steps there that have more to do with our ability to care for this population than it does with our ability to medically manage their condition. I'm thinking that anything that gives us a different time frame, that gives us more time to work with some of the things we have, and that lessens the likelihood that we'll start to see variants of this virus that can be problematic, I have to think that that's going to be a good thing. Yeah, I think it's a whole area that um, we really just need to explore. We need research in this area, too. Here's a research gap. So all of you researchers out there, here's an opportunity for an R01. Here's an opportunity to really focus on this, this very important population. Uh, so we are reaching the end of our morning session. And I want to thank you, Dr. Fullalove, for an incredible presentation uh, and, and really thank you so much for bringing us inside a population that, that many of us have very little 
experience with. And it's really been so important to hear this message today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the welcome. Everybody, good luck with the rest of the conference. I have to teach a class. Uh So I'm going to give everyone an opportunity to take a little break for about 30 minutes. Go get yourself a New York bagel and a hot pastrami sandwich. Um, And uh, be sure that you are back here uh, by 3.15, maybe 3.10. So we will be starting at 3.15 talking about prep. So please, uh, please have a good lunch and rejoin us soon. Thanks.